Hello, this is Dan Lina. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. My guest today is Dorna Moini. Dorna is the founder and CEO of Documate, a document automation platform. Before founding Documate, Dorna was a litigator, first at Shepard Mullen and then at Sidley Austin. In 2019, the American Bar Association named Dorna to its most recent class of legal rebels. And beginning in January, Dorna will be teaching a class on legal technology at the University of Southern California Law School. Dorna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. We've worked together a little bit in the past in in some of the classes that you've taught, and I'm really excited to be here with you today. Yes, I'm really excited for our conversation. Before we jump in, we want to thank our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsor, Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account anytime at logical.com slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. And we also want to thank our sponsor, Headnote. Headnote helps lawyers get paid faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. To learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently, visit them at headnote.com. That's headnote.com. Well, so Dorna, before we start talking about Documate, can you just tell us a little bit about your career path and your legal career before you left Sidley Austin to found Documate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So when I first went to law school, I thought I was going to be a a human rights lawyer, kind of like Mm -hmm. probably many students who go into into law school, Uh, then went down the the corporate law path, um, worked at Shepard Mullen and then Sidley Austin. And in both of those firms, I was doing mostly a lot of employment litigation, particularly in uh, the trade secrets and employee rating areas. I did a lot of trial work, which was super fun. And it's an area of law where you get a lot of experience really early on. And my path over to Documate was sort of unexpected. And it arose just out of the the pro bono legal work that I was doing at the time um, with domestic violence survivors, actually. Well, tell us more about that that work. I, I know you created a tool for, for, well, you tell us about it exactly, the domestic violence work. Definitely. Yeah. So I was, when, while I was at Sidley, I was also doing pro bono work on the side. And, you know, you have usually as an associate, like 100 or 200 hours to do pro bono. Um, I was spending that a lot on with domestic violence survivors. But during that time, I also felt like a lot of the work that I was doing was very routine and, uh, you know, form based and meant that out of those 200 hours that I had to do, do pro bono work, I was spending half of it drafting up documents that really a lawyer shouldn't be doing, or maybe a lawyer should just be reviewing. Um, I wanted to spend my time helping them in court, going to trial for them, giving them really, really legal sensitive advice. Um, So what I wanted to do, I I lived in San Francisco at the time. And in San Francisco, as you probably have heard, engineers are everywhere. And so I had a lot of friends who were engineers. And I got together with Michael, who is now my co-founder, and I was like, Michael, do you want to help me build this, this workflow? Basically, what I want to do is build a TurboTax for domestic violence survivors, where people can get on the platform, add, answer several different relevant questions, and then be issued with the documents they need and be able to kind of click a button and, and e-file those over. So Michael was excited about this project. I was still at Sidley at the time, and we, we started working on it. And we decided to kind of, we were, we were like, this is, we launched it throughout Sidley and a bunch of legal aid organizations um, were also using it. 
And we decided we wanted to build out a series of different tools for legal aid um, and for low and moderate income users. So after that, we launched we launched a domestic violence platform. We launched an expungement tool. Uh, we launched an eviction defense tool and wanted to essentially become like the legal zoom for low and moderate income people. Some of those tools that don't exist out there. And that's what led us down the path to document because we realized that the better way to really serve both the legal aid organizations and really the, the group of you know, people in the U.S. who don't have access to legal services was to build more of a platform and allow lawyers to automate their own expertise. Well, so tell us a little more about this domestic violence platform. Is it, is it still being used, for example? It is. So it's actually not directly on our site anymore, but although we had several different legal aid organizations in California who had signed up for it and are still using it, it's not available for consumers to use anymore, but there are legal aid organizations and domestic violence shelters who are still using it on a daily basis, particularly in, in their clinics to just automate that process. Then they just review the documents at the end with the client and um, send them on their way to the court and tell them exactly how to file it. Well, so that's an interesting project. I mean, I think one of the things that would be really interesting in this space, too, is if we could see that we could get more of these projects. Sometimes they tend to, to seem to be a little bit siloed, right? And if we can come up with solutions that could actually scale to multiple jurisdictions, is that anything you've been been thinking about trying to tackle? Yeah. So so that's actually sort of, that was the reason, what you just described is the reason that we moved from the domestic violence platform into what we have as Documate. Because what we felt like was we had built this domestic violence tool which applied to about 50 of the 58 counties in California, but it took us a lot of time because the law is so fragmented that we had to make sure we had most of the law in California is fairly similar. You know, the forms are pretty similar, but then you have all these local forms that we had to also add. Um, so that was difficult. It took a lot of time. And we thought if we build Documate, all of the relevant stakeholders in all of these different jurisdictions, different states, different counties, you know, even, even more granularly, can take what someone else has built and iterate on that. So that's sort of what our goal is now is because we're not focused as much on content anymore, we're both focused on building the best platform for the lawyers. We're hoping that our lawyers are going to be able to collaborate with each other and use tools that they've built most of to pass it on to each other and, and kind of build on top of kind of like almost like GitHub has done for, for code. You know, you have, you can pull someone else's GitHub branch and fork off of it and go off in different directions. And you're, you're cutting down and reducing a lot of the work that needed to be done. Yeah, I love that GitHub example. To me, I think that's the, the perfect example. It's like thinking about someone's perfected how to do this particular piece of work, and we can just plug that piece in wherever we need it. And, and instead of reinventing the wheel time and again. Exactly. And hopefully the law is becoming more collaborative in that way, too. Yeah. Well, I think there's a ton of work to do in the legal aid space on that, but also in corporations and law firms. I, I mean, I, I know we both have an experience where seeing opportunities. We can talk a little bit more about that, too, just to kind of close the loop a little bit on Document. So you mentioned TurboTax and, and expert systems. Uh, so you've really branded as a document automation platform, but you have tools in Document that you can create basic expert systems. I mean, can you kind of just tell us more like about where you see the, the dividing line between a uh, a document automation platform and an expert system platform? Yeah. So I think a lot of times people, um, especially the, the language around legal technology right now is really to infuse the word AI and everything, but yeah. AI really just comes down to being a 
decision trees. And yes, now we have much more sophisticated versions of AI where you have natural language processing and you have fuzzy logic, but at a base level, it's just decision trees. And that's exactly what document automation is. And that's exactly what expert systems for the most part can be. So we currently, what we, what we tell people about in terms of our product is the no code features, because we want to attract people who don't have any coding knowledge to come onto our platform and be able to build whatever they want and know that they don't necessarily need need an engineer to help them do that. It's it's really cool to realize that dream that you have in your head as a non-engineer. But we also have some clients who are building much more complex tools and injecting code into what, what they have on Document. So for example, we have um, a law firm who is using a database of case law data through, if you know what, Neo4j, which is like a graphical database. And so they built all the front end on Documate, but then they have, they're using these advanced database tools to create more, uh, more of like a natural language processing and data analysis to decide and, and give you answers through what, what you would traditionally think of as an expert system. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons why I've been excited about uh, using Documate in some of my classes at Northwestern and what I've been doing at Busirius Law School and in the summer programs. We used it for the Institute for the Future of Law Practice as well. Sometimes when people think of document automation, they just think of mail merge in Microsoft Word, and that's the end of the capabilities. And uh, maybe that's, I guess, the most in its strictest terms, document automation. But your platform, you can actually do, you can add a lot of logic, conditional logic in the documents itself, in the workflow. And so you can't create an expert system uh, that that would allow for much more than just you know putting words into a fixed template. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, no, so one other thing I wanted to ask you about is I think one of the many things interesting about Document is that it's actually built on top of DocAssemble, which more and more people I think are getting familiar with this platform. It's it's open source, it's a free platform. How did you decide to use DocAssemble to to create your company Document on top of DocAssemble? Yeah. So when we had first launched the domestic violence platform, we built that all completely from scratch and it took us several months. You know, I was the idea person and Michael, my co-founder was actually putting it into code and we didn't know that DocSemble existed. And then we went to the legal services corporation conference, which is usually in January. It's actually coming up this, uh, in about a month now in, in Portland. And we met Jonathan Pyle who had created DocAssemble and he gave this this session on DocAssemble and he was talking about, you know, he used to be, he is, is still a lawyer. He actually does DocAssemble on, on the side, which is quite impressive. Yeah, um, yeah. And he had built this tool for lawyers to build document automation. And he was sort of saying that anyone can get on the DocAssemble platform and build things out. You do have to learn quite a bit of code to do anything more complex than, you know, like hello world. But uh-huh. um, But we were like, wait a minute, if he's built something that really addresses this exact market, and at the time we were only uh, working with legal aid organizations, and he knows that this works for it, why don't we build something that's no code and is built on top of that? So you can much more easily build out these workflows and really make it feel like like it's, it's kind of happening um, out of your dreams. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, so tell us what's your kind of your, your vision for the company. Do you have like a product roadmap or, or have particular updates in mind that you want to bring to the document platform? Yeah, definitely. So our kind of goals for, for 2020 specifically is, you know, one to be the most powerful document automation software available. What we've seen is the tools that exist out there right now are either incredibly powerful 
but they require a lot of coding knowledge. So you really need to have an IT team or an engineer in-house. Or on the opposite side of the spectrum, they're really easy to use. But as you said, they're basically kind of like mail merge. They don't do much more than, than that. And so we want to be able to mesh those two, two together. And we're constantly adding new features uh, on that front. We want to be you know, an affordable way and, and an accessible platform for, for small and mid-sized law firms. We already give our software for free to, to legal aid and, and to educators. And we we're adding a lot of data features for you to be able to store data. You know, you have, you might have, you might be using Clio as your CRM, but that holds only a very specific subset of data. Whereas when you're doing document automation, you're literally capturing every piece of information that exists about your client. And so you will now have a centralized, we're actually launching this feature this week. Um, we have it in client beta right now, but you'll have every single piece of data that you've collected from a client inside of document in the system. So that's second, you know, more of the data functionality. And then third is enabling lawyers to, to be able to collaborate better, kind of like we were discussing earlier and share their workflows with each other. So we're going to be creating more of a sort of page and, and location for, for our lawyers to network with each other. They can al already do that a little bit through our Slack group. We have a Slack group for, for our um, clients and really anyone who wants to join. What this will enable them to do is be able to to pull a workflow that someone else has created and, and kind of build on top of that, like we were talking about earlier. That all sounds great. And I think one of the most important points to me about undertaking the work to engage in document automation, people get really focused on the AI part of it and the, the natural language generation, for example, things like that. There's data, data is lacking big time in the, in this space. And, and so if you use a tool like DocAssemble and you go through the work of, of creating this workflow and automating documents and you can start generating data that can also be really helpful uh, in this the workflow. So that, that all really sounds great. And, and that leads me to this other question I, I wanted to ask. You have, have some success stories in document automation projects. I'm sure you also have had some failures or, or maybe some projects that don't work out as, as well as people wanted it to. What would you say are the, the best practices for success with a document automation project? Uh, well, they say, they actually say this about starting any business, but I think the, the key is to start with something that you know. So it's a problem that you've had, a problem that you've experienced in your own practice, because you then know both your process and that you're solving a particular need. Otherwise, if you're not already doing that, the next kind of second best option is to do something where you've, you've, you've talked to all the relevant stakeholders. So in the student context, when students are building tools, they usually haven't practiced. And so, so they don't, unless they're LLM students, so they don't really know what they want to build and they haven't experienced it firsthand necessarily. But oftentimes what I usually recommend is they go out and talk to people in the field, like go talk to your professors, go talk to your, go talk to legal aid organizations, go talk to people in the community and potential customers and see what their problems are. So, you know, first that you're solving a need and second, that you're solving it in the right way. You know, lawyers have been really successful in automating a lot of the areas that, that they know about. Uh, but legal tech entrepreneurs sometimes want to build a, a solution to something without necessarily having, having experienced the problem. So I think those two should always match up. And then we also actually recently came out with, uh, we, we started basically talking to several different document automation specialists, so people who had worked on document automation projects in the past. 
and asked them and, and, and kind of knew the document system and asked them if they wanted to be part of a new group that we have on our, on our site called the document automation specialists. We're going to call them documenters very soon, <laughs> but we have them kind of available if someone wants to contract with them independently uh, to talk through the process because these people know they've done several different document automation projects. They know exactly what kind of you know mapping you should build out, what kind of logical workflows you should build out on paper before you put it into an idea. And, and they've experienced also, you know, the, the user testing side of it in terms of how you can get people, how you understand whether your system is, is usable and understandable by end users. Yeah. All, all great advice. And you made the point that it's like starting a business or, I mean, I think so much of this in the legal vertical, we can learn from problem solving and software development and in other spaces and, and getting people engaged to understand how to map a process and really understand the user needs, human centered design. Um, and then the user testing on the back end. It, I mean, it turns out that success with these projects, it does take a lot of work, right? And, and so I think people maybe sometimes underestimate, uh, they want, AI to be a magical solution or they want any one of these tools to be a magical solution. And it turns out that there's a, there's a lot of work that goes into really making the most of these tools. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's everything, all of the expertise that's in your head still needs to get out there onto the screen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and then the point too of, of, um, you know, usually what you're really trying to do, I think one of the things that to me is great about document automation is is you're trying to, I mean, there's this tendency, I think, in, in all legal organizations that we all operate as individuals. We decide the way we're going to draft an answer or a brief or a particular contract. And the whole point here is that there's a lot of cost to that, of, of this kind of reinventing the wheel, each of us on our own. There's many costs, not just in creating the work product, but then downstream when people need to go and, and do something with that work product, having the, you know, there's 10 different ways that we did it. How can we have more standards and consistency? And that involves more than just the one expert. It's like bringing multiple experts to the table and ask, well, what, what are we really trying to accomplish here for our organization? What, what is a, a, the best way to do it or a reasonable approach? And then once you start doing it, you can start gathering data that helps you inform and keep it. So so it's, it's really never ending, this, this engaging in this sort of work approach to keep thinking about how do we keep improving the things that we're doing? Yeah, definitely. And you know, you not you and I had talked about this before. There's this sort of pessimistic outlook on lawyers that that will never happen. Stand, standardized documents will never happen because lawyers just want to create more work for themselves. Yeah. Um, but you know, hopefully, I, I think that a lot of lawyers don't want to do that, that basic standardized rote work. They want to be focused on what they actually went to law school for. So hopefully the legal field will can move, move in the right direction there as long as I think we need some kind of mobilizing uh, force to, to push us in, in that direction. Well, how, how are we going to mobilize people? How are we going to push people in that direction? I mean, what do you think, what do you think we need to be doing to engage uh, more people in, in seeing the upside of innovating and using technology and using it to really expand the reach of our profession? You know, I think in the in the legal aid field, because there's such a necessity and there's such a dearth of lawyers, they have almost been not they they not necessarily have the funds to do everything they want to, but in ideas, they have a lot of ideas in terms of how to change the legal field. Like when you go to the LSC um, ITC, the conference that that LSC puts on every year, there are lots of really cool ideas floating around. Not necessarily enough money to to execute and implement all of them, but it, it it's born out of necessity. Whereas in a lot of the for profit legal market. There, there hasn't been that kind of necessity because you know lawyers are 
are paid by the hour. But I think what's important is to change the way that that lawyers think about about legal services to make them realize that the more they can have access to some of the middle class and build these sort of flat fee service tools or legal tech tools, the better that is technically for their own business because they're going to be able to have more volume-based practices um, and automation can actually be be a friendly tool for really growing the size of the the legal market and and the legal pie. Mm -hmm. Well, let me push back a little bit on something you said, right? Because I think um, it, funding is uh, is a is a challenging issue because, of course, everyone's always going to want more funding. I don't care where you are; you could be in a in a in a well off corporation, and you're going to say like, "Well, we need more funding to be able to to do this." I mean, uh, we'll probably never have enough funding to increase access to legal services, but we're expending resources in the legal industry all over the place inside of law schools at companies, right? I think Jim Sandman makes the case, and I've been trying to pick up on this about we can learn from corporations and, and law firms and think about what we learn there and then plowing it back into thinking about how to improve access to legal services and justice. So what if we what if we assumed we had all the money in the world? We're still going to have to lead and mobilize people. And how can we make better use of the resources that we're expending now, right? And and so um, I mean, is that is that am I going too far now to suggest that we need we can't allow funding to be an excuse? We've got to figure out how to move the profession forward. That's a really good question. And I actually think it comes back to sort of people like you who are, you know, professors at law schools, because where it really stems from is law school, the the you know, youth of of the legal field who can decide which paths they take. They can they can go and use that funding in the right ways to make make the legal field more more efficient or they particularly in the in the access to justice field just directing those resources and and being aware of of the fact that that exists will will lead people not necessarily just through funding but through attention to to kind of start helping solve this problem well, let's shift gears just a little bit. And, and I mean, there's a lot of debate about how much law firms are actually innovating. And so you're only a couple of years removed from being in, in a large law firm and not just your experience necessarily at that law firm, but you could see everything across the market, right? You're interacting with other firms. I mean, how much do you think law firms are actually innovating? What are you, what are you seeing in the market? I think it's it's a lot based on, it's all coming from the demand side. So even during the time that I was at a law firm, in the first year, I remember feeling like I was pulling templates off a system to reinvent, like, as you said, reinvent the wheel constantly. And I saw firsthand clients starting to push back on fees, clients starting to, clients knowing that there are tools to make things more efficient. Um, even some of the litigation work that we did started being phased out in, in flat fee services. So you would have, you know, the, complaint through the end of discovery would be a certain flat fee. Discovery through the pre-trial motions would be another flat fee. And that sort of demand side fee structure, I think, leads law firms to start to want to innovate because they're incentivized by the right things now. They're incentivized by efficiency as opposed to just, just billable hours. And it's, I think it's it's slow. It's, it's moving slowly within the law, larger law firms because those, the stuff that can be automated is often a loss leader and they might not be spending that much money on it anyway, but, but it is happening. Um, there's a cool company called legal I don't know if you've heard of them. Oh yeah. 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 
Uh, they've been on this podcast as a matter of fact. Oh, they have? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to go listen, go back and listen to their <laughs> You haven't listened podcast. to every episode. I've endured. Oh, oh goodness. <laughs> I actually look, I was scrolling through um a few days ago and I, I didn't see them, but um I, I will definitely make sure to do that right after. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, but they're doing really cool things within large law firms. I mean, that complaint to answer to the initial discovery. They only have a a few of the different legal areas, I think, out right now, but they're very quickly expanding. And and that's something that is also coming from a lot of the demand side. Like I know they have clients like Walmart who are are telling law firms, you need to use this tool. Otherwise, we we don't want to work with you or we're not going to pay your bill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me put back on my law firm partner hat and I'll pretend we're back both, you know, we're both sophisticated litigators and big law <laughs> firms. Oh, did you, Dorna, did you see that legalmation tool? I mean, yeah, maybe slip and falls you can use, you know, legalmation, but that's not going to impact any of the work that we do. I mean, our, our work is really pretty special and you, you can't automate what we do. I mean, how do you respond to, to people who, you know, who have that kind of perspective? I mean, what was your experience? Where, what kind of work do you, I mean, what sort of opportunity, again, we have to see this as an opportunity. I think people see it so much as a threat. Where are the opportunities to use these tools, even in sophisticated litigation? Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think it's true that not everything can be automated. Mm-hmm. Like we're not just going to do away with lawyers completely. There are things like, you know, like the complaint, the discovery, setting up templates, a lot of that can be automated, but going to a deposition, doing, and I know, I know there are some companies sort of trying to do stuff with, with legal research as well, but we're really not there. Like we, yeah. we still need humans to be doing legal research, applying facts to, to law. That is all sophisticated legal work that, that I don't think is going to be automated anytime soon. But there are also lots of template-based work. And this also goes back to kind of the standards thing. Like at a, at a large law firm, particularly, you have tons of different templates that you are not even templates, but like precedents that you've worked from. And when you're drafting an MSJ, you'll go, or at least, I don't know, this is my experience. I'll just talk (laughs) from my personal experience. I go into the system and like, look up MSJ, you know, this particular statute and see if anyone had written something similar. So I could at least like pull little pieces and not reinvent everything, or even just like the standard for summary judgment motion. But there's pieces of the process that can be broken off. Yeah. Uh, which in you know in legal aid and in in consumer facing legal services we call unbundling, but we haven't really started to do in the in big law firms. Yeah, yeah, and every associate and junior partner in the world is saying, yeah, that's pretty much the way I create work product too. And and I, I, <laughs> I mean, now to be fair, I think some firms have done a much better job at like creating, uh, uh, you know, some are better than others at creating like knowledge management resources to kind of push this information. You also have to rely on the attorneys to take the invest the time to kind of learn how to use those and contribute to those resources. So it, it's really uneven. I think something with legalmation, for example, another, that's another example of people underestimate about the impact because they just think, oh, well, that's just an efficiency play and fine. You can be a little bit more efficient, but there's so many other areas. Well, it's like, but it's also a data play and you start putting a process in place you're gathering data, you can make faster early case assessments and things like that. Uh, the depositions example is a good one. Ray Bailey at Novus Law did a, a study of just looking at in a litigation how many times documents get touched time and time and time again, like the initial intake, the review, preparing for a DAP, preparing for a different DAP, preparing for motions. And it's like, why don't we have platforms that better manage all this massive information? We're doing so much in our Outlook inbox, things like that. Definitely. Um, well, I want to talk also about law schools and the stuff that you're going to be doing at the University of Southern California. But before we do that, 
we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor, and then we'll be back to continue our interview with Dorna Moini, founder and CEO of Document. Ten years ago, e-discovery meant lawyers packed into a basement, fumbling with complex, slow software, wondering where their lives had gone wrong. Today, much of that frustration remains, but fortunately, there's logical. Not e-discovery, but instant discovery. Logical's intuitive cloud-based software makes document search and review easy, fast, and affordable. It's time to get out of the basement. Create a free account instantly, any time of day, at logical.com forward slash LTN. That's logic with a K. C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. We're with Dorna Moini, founder and CEO of Document. Dorna, we mentioned that you're going to be teaching a class at the University of Southern California Law School starting here just, just next month, um, actually, and wanted to kind of ask you, I mean, you practiced in big law for six years. Now you've been a legal tech entrepreneur for two years. Based on what you're seeing in the, in the marketplace, you have a, a lot of experience in legal aid as well. Just so you, You've seen a lot of components of the, the legal industry, the legal ecosystem. What do you think law schools need to do to update their curricula? Yeah, so... In terms of what we're sort of going to be doing in, in my class next semester, and I've learned a lot from you, Dan, from all the teachings that you've given me from, from what you've taught in, in legal tech courses. But I think we really need to teach our, our like legal minds to think outside of the box. There is so much of the law that is you know, black letter law. You learn the rule and you apply the rule. But in any area, whether you are going to go work for a law firm or you're going to go start a legal technology company or do any of the multiple different things that you can do with a legal degree, I think it's important to do things, think think what how you can do things differently and unconventionally. Like if you want a job at a certain company, don't just send your resume over. Send an email to the partner that you want to work with and even maybe go visit their office and be a little bit of stalkerish to, to, <laughs> to get their attention because that's how you get really exceptional opportunities. And the same thing applies when, when you're working on, on your own legal technology company. You, you, you have to do things that are, that are outside of the box. Well, I think sometimes when we talk about technology, that the assumption is, especially at, at law schools like uh, Michigan, Northwestern, USC, people think, oh, well, you want to learn about this because you're going to take this alternative path. And can we, first of all, let's talk about this as, as kind of a couple of tracks, right? There's alternative paths. I really actually like to talk about most of what we're talking about in this as like a non-traditional path because it really requires your legal understanding, uh, even to be a legal tech entrepreneur, or if you're going to be a, a legal engineer or a, a project manager in a law firm even. But what about just this traditional path? You're going back to Sidley or Kirkland or a, a big firm and you want to become partner there. 
what kind of things by working on innovation and legal tech projects, whether it's as an entrepreneur or in the law school, what are the kind of skills that you think you would develop that would help you be more successful to be on that path to become a partner in a, in a big law firm? So if I'm being really honest about this, it's actually not necessarily the technology that I've learned about that would be, that would be, if I was going to go back to Sidley, that would have been Mm -hmm. super beneficial to me. It's actually all the learnings that I've gained from being at a startup in the startup culture, running a business. So for example, marketing, business, sales, hiring, these are all things that we do very differently in the startup world than, than law firms. Like at a law firm, there's kind of starting with hiring. Like you look at someone's resume, if they meet all your qualifications, GPA and their school is good and they're in the right student organizations, uh, you know, they're on law review, then they come in for an in-person interview. The in-person interview in my experience is basically just making sure that you like the person and you would want to go grab a beer with them. It's, it's not much more than that. Whereas, um, like i I've started reading a bunch of books on hiring and we do quite an extensive hiring process when we bring people on to, to document. We do several rounds of interviews. We go through their entire background and talk about the goals that they had at every single different job and how they, how they feel like they accomplished those goals. We talk to several references and make sure that the goals that they state that they were, were like going after are actually the goals that the managers were also looking for. So there's a lot that we do differently and I think at the startup world versus the the law firm world that has their sort of ingrained systems. Similarly, like in marketing and sales, those are things that you could do differently if you're going to be a partner today than than and really build up build up your business. You know, we, you can obviously relationships are are key and that's something you should definitely focus on, but there are innovative ways to bring in some a tool that you're using technology-wise to make your law firm have a brand that it, that it otherwise wouldn't and your practice really be known for that brand. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of like business skills, um, just like thinking in lean startup sort of way or, or thinking about like even using uh, a lean canvas or a business model canvas, like really making sure you understand, well, what's the problem? Like, well, how do I, how do I need to pitch myself as a solution to the problem that my, that my customers have? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, if you let read the lean startup book. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe I, mean, I should make that as part of part of our curriculum for, for next semester. Yeah. Well, I find the lean canvas to be really helpful even to think about careers because students are frequently just thinking about, oh, great, I I got an offer. I'm going to this big law firm. Things are set. And I think the lean startup, or excuse me, the lean lean startup principles, but the lean canvas I find is really helpful to really think about, well, what's the problem in the world that I solve? And and why is someone going to call me, right? What's my unique value proposition? Why are they going to hire me? If I'm at the big firm, why are they going to pay me six, eight hundred, a thousand dollars an hour to solve? Solve their problem, and and um, usually we think it's just because of all this legal knowledge in our head. But it turns out lots of people have that legal knowledge in their head. That's not enough. Yeah, as lawyers, we're commodities, and so we need to learn how to how to market ourselves in the right way too. Yeah, and and how to add those other skills, right? So that we actually do have unique value proposition that we can that we can market. Why don't you tell us a little bit specifically about? So, what class are you teaching, and is it going to be more of a hands on class, or tell us more about it? Yeah. So it's going to be called the Legal Innovations Lab and it's going to be very hands-on. So it's meeting once per week, but it's a three-hour class. And I've kind of split it up into several different categories. So we'll talk about 
some of the areas we're talking about our product we'll have a day where we'll talk about user centered design and and you know how you build a product and a product roadmap uh, we'll talk about unauthorized practice of law issues since that's that's a hot topic in the law right now um, I'm actually having the the GC of legal zoom will be coming coming to speak to the class that day uh, that guy's we'll a character about Yes, definitely. <laughs> We're excited. <laughs> yeah, Chaz is, I mean, Chaz came and spoke at Michigan State. What's my oh, professional really? responsibility? Yeah, it was great. He was great. So it's great. Yeah, that's, he's a great person. He actually went to thoughts. USC Law School too. Yeah, 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 yeah. He reminds <laughs> people of that frequently, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trojan pride, right? Um, yes, yes, yes. Uh, we'll be talking about automation, about data analytics. And then I also want to do a, the, the last, the final project will be basically them showcasing a project that they've built over the course of the semester. And so the, the week before that final project, I want to do something on, on fundraising. Um, and I'll be having someone come in who kind of knows a lot about that. And what I think that teaches people is not necessarily like raising money, but presentation skills, which whether you're fundraising from a venture capital firm or whether you are pitching to a client because you, you want to win the case, those skills are very similar. Um, so I think that it'll be a class that's useful for someone who wants to go into legal technology, but also someone who just wants to take the traditional legal path and, and wants to gain these skills along the path. Yeah, that sounds great. And I think that last point you made too, about the, the general applicability of learning from pitches. And I think that's another example of, well, I, I really think it's important to make the point that when we're working in these legal tech projects, you have to learn, you have to know the law cold, right? If you're talking about document automation or, or creating something in domestic violence space, you really need to know the law. So in these courses, when students are building these tools, they learn a lot about the law. It requires a deep dive into the law. But just then the general applicability of these concepts, when you're arguing a motion in front of a judge... I mean, it's a similar approach, right? What does the judge care about? How do you get the judge's attention? How do you tee it up for a decision that it makes it easy for the judge to rule in your favor, right? I mean, these are generally applicable principles. So learning about pitching can absolutely help, not just in pitching to get clients, but getting judges to rule in your favor or helping win a, a negotiation point, things like that. Yeah, definitely. You need to be so practiced and rehearsed in your responses that you know every question that could potentially come your way and every answer you would give. There's actually a, I don't know if Y Combinator created the site, but there's this website where you can go on and get questions that Y Combinator interviewers would, would give you. And you basically just click the button and it gives you a minute to answer every single question. And if you can't answer that question in a minute, then it tells you, you know, you failed, the big red screen comes up and it just keeps going. So it's, it's some, having something like that for law might be fun where you're quizzing people on their motion before they go before the judge. Yeah. I think that's great to think about a tool to help train uh, like that. And I think we'll, hopefully we'll see more and more of those tools like to help in the workflow and to help you prepare for an, an oral argument. For example, I'll frequently hear people say they'll see someone argue a motion. Oh, she's brilliant. She's brilliant. Like we always attribute everything to intellectual capacity and it's, probably that maybe that person is brilliant, but that person was prepared, right? And I mean, mm -hmm. we, we undervalue like how much about uh, discipline preparation really goes to being successful in law practice. So true. And honestly, that's what I think being at a big law firm taught me most. And that's why whenever people are like, oh, what, you know, should I go into legal technology or start a startup right after law school? My advice is typically no, because I think you need, unless you've done something, you've worked before and you've worked, you know, at a high stress situation and a high stress workplace in the past, because I think what big law firms teach you most is being prepared, 
being on time, being responsive. Some of those like very basic skills that really are like 90, 90%, you know, they say like, is it saying like 90% of the job is like showing up or something like that? Right, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so we're getting pretty close to the end of our time here. I did want to ask you about something else. You're, you're in, in, in the LA area. Uh, of course, we're seeing a few states, California, Utah, Arizona. We're see, here in, in Illinois, there's a task force in Chicago looking at uh, the re-regulation of lawyers, kind of loosening up regulations. One of those would be eliminating Rule 5.4 potentially, so that would allow lawyers to work more closely with technologists. It would also allow technologists to deliver services. Now, you're a lawyer, and, and you're barred, so you could create a tool and, and sell it as a lawyer, but even think about, uh, I mean, the opportunity like the domestic violence platform you, you created before. I mean, if we change the rules, it would create space for technologists to come in, create solutions, deliver legal services. I mean, what do you kind of what are your thoughts on that i mean this seems like it's we're going to eventually get there it's just a matter of what the timing is going to be i mean what what are your thoughts on kind of a, is this a good thing how 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 should lawyers be thinking about how it's going to impact the marketplace yeah i think this is a kind of polarizing topic right now amongst lawyers i personally think it's it's a great idea i mean in every single other field other than the law even in medicine which is probably you could do more damage than in the law. We have nurses and we have other professionals who are able to assist with, with services. We have medical devices and medical, medical technology that helps. And I think the market will eventually find the ones that, that are doing well and people will gravitate towards those services. And there's less harm in, in tools that could be put out there that don't necessarily work because the market will kind of push them out. Um, in, in California, the task force on access through, I think it's called access through innovation of legal services. They have kind of put the idea of access to legal services as, at the forefront, which is that this isn't just about people trying to make money on legal technology, but really it's about giving access to the, the people who need it the most and who don't necessarily have, aren't able to pay the average lawyer's fee of you know $350 an hour. I think right now the way that we talk about this in the legal field is incredibly polarizing, kind of like our political discussion has gotten in the U.S. It's like you're either on the side of moving towards technology or you're on the side of you are completely against technology and you think nothing can be automated. And we sort of need to find a middle ground and a better conversation around this. Well, how do we do that? I mean, you're one of the leaders in this space. You're, you're teaching law students. Uh, you were just recognized as a legal rebel. I mean, how do we really, we, we talk a lot about human-centered design, and we're just talking about how to solve problems and understand, you know, have empathy for people where they're coming from. How do people like you and other people who are leading in this space try to help get people on board with, these are changes we need to move the profession forward? How, how do we do that? I think that, and this is something we had talked about before, I think, where about, you know, we, we can, I can, I can guess, you know, and I, my assumption and thoughts are that the more legal services we, the more automated legal services and legal tech tools we have in the market, the more work that actually brings for lawyers because of the fact that you're opening up the market, but we don't really have any concrete evidence of this. And so maybe we can find some economists to help us out to actually uh-huh, give yeah. people the the footnote and the and the site to the fact that this is true and the actual data and analysis behind it uh, because it seems it seems like it should be obvious but maybe if we have more concrete data that would lead people to to believe it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's so much need for more empirical work on this. We have our hypotheses. We tend to kind of like just be in this polarized state about our, our view of what we think the world ought to be. How do we collect data? How do we engage other professionals to help study the future of the market? I think the other thing is too, is just getting back to our values and thinking about, well, this is the right thing to do. We're, we, we're supposed to serve people. We're supposed to, to make sure they have access to law, legal services, justice. And this certainly seems the right thing to do in that vein as part of it. But um, but understanding where, where people are coming from, I think we're too quick to uh, call people Luddites or, or say that they're monopolists and protectionists. And but really kind of understanding, you know, if, if the, the situation people find themselves in and, and how do we actually I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of work still to be done in this space to kind of get the whole profession rowing in the same direction. Yeah, it's it's almost like we should have a, a legal Hippocratic oath or something, where we yeah. we all think about why why did you actually become a lawyer and what are lawyers really intended to do? Yeah, well, I think it's there in a way. It's the preamble to the model rules of professional uh, mm-hmm. responsibility. But unfortunately, those are you know those really aren't binding on us. And and you know, are we going to live up to those those principles? But uh, well, Dorna, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to hear more about your class at USC. And can you just let our listeners know how to follow your work and, and get in contact with you on social media platforms and otherwise? Yeah, definitely. So anyone can email me at hello at documate.org. Um, you can find us on Twitter at, at documate law. Um, we are also, we're basically on every social media platform. You can find us on LinkedIn, on Facebook. We're at Documate on, on all of those as well. Well, thank you so much, Dorna, for joining us. Thank you for all the work that you're, you're doing in this space. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. This has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. Please take a minute to subscribe and rate us in Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Linna. Please follow me, retweet links to this episode, and join us in the legal innovation and technology discussion online. And also join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.